Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. episode 63 with Sean Larson on wilderness fishing. Crack the beers. Yep. Here we go. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> I think you're my third in-person podcast. Those are the only ones that get the beer crack. Oh. All right. Well, we can get rolling. I know you were trying to um, spoiler me with all your history on on your fly fishing. So now go ahead and why don't you tell me how you got started in fly fishing? Um, so I've, I grew up fishing just with a uh, spin, spin cast reel uh, and sort of gravitated to flies using the fly in the bubble method and um, worked with some buddies um, that started fly fishing and tying their own flies. And so I just said, well, sounds like it'd be fun to try. I had kind of tried it with a, you know, really old cheap fly rod that was probably built in the fifties in an old reel. Where'd you get that? I don't I think I got it at the flea market. Um, And it was, uh, I used a rod that was reversible, so the butt section reversed. It was a fly rod on one side and, and a spin casting rod on the other. Oh, weird. I don't know if I've ever heard of that. It was an eagle claw. I, don't that, know. I mean, if I had to guess what that was, yeah, that's what would have come the to The old mind. eagle claw. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, um, it was it was because I had some buddies that were, they were fly fishing and uh, just got into it, and that was probably 1993 or 4, I think. So, um, and we just you know, kind of got into going on trips to, together. We worked together and uh, four or five of us would take a weekend and go to the Arkansas or, you know, what have you, and just sort of bloom from there. 
So are you from Colorado originally? Yes, born and raised. Okay. I think you might be the first person I've had on here that both lives here now and was born here. A rare native, yes. yes. Yep. And one of the, I don't want to disparage anyone, but one of the cool ones. I feel like I noticed <laughs> that uh, a lot of the natives I meet, it's like, well, you were born here, but like, okay. Uh, a lot of the people who came here, it's like they came here because they're, they're fun and they like to do fun stuff. Right. Uh, so you might be one of the, the, the few natives I know who's actually taking advantage of what the state has to offer. Yeah, I I mean it's uh Colorado's deep in my deep in my blood. So it's hard to it's hard to leave. Yeah, I'm sure. So um walk me through how you got from getting started to like where you are now. Uh it sounds like you do a ton of fishing. You obviously are a mutual friend uh with John who was on a couple episodes ago. Yep. Um so like how'd you how did you progress from your double-sided lightsaber-esque uh spin and fly rod to uh where you are now and like how did you meet John? Um so just the progression, you know, obviously when you first start out, you buy less expensive gear just because you're not sure sometimes that you're going to, you know, really take advantage of it and use it. And um, you start to realize that that gear isn't the greatest quality. Um, and so it just, you know, kind of evolves from there and you you step up in better and better equipment as time goes on and you get more into, into that activity. So that was uh, sort of the progression. And you know, I said, oh, I'm never going to own more than one fly reel. And now I have five, six, I don't know. <laughs> I, I remember that stage too. Where I'm like, I can do everything with this. Yeah. And it's like, but I could have more. <laughs> yeah. So, oh yeah, I got a two weight and a three weight and a four weight and a five weight and an eight weight. <laughs> right. Because it really matters every single size. But I feel you. I'm like, if I could just have one of every weight. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was just kind of a natural, you know, progression that I probably every fly fisherman goes through where you just want to have better gear and different gear for different situations you know fighting mm -hmm. a big fish in alaska is going to take different gear than you know fishing bear creek here right. in 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 denver's so um you know that that's just sort of the progression of getting into more more and different equipment um i met john uh <laughs> oddly enough listening to one of your previous podcasts with john I think you and I found him in a very similar fashion, um, a blog that he wrote about finding golden trout in Colorado. And I don't remember what I was, I think I was searching for golden trout, just poking around because I knew they had been stocked in various, you know, lakes throughout Colorado. And I was just curious if, you know, anyone had found them and, and uh, posted anything on, on the web about golden trout. So... I found his blog post and contacted him through through there and we had just literally within I think it was a week or two of one another uh, done a trip in the Wemanooch wilderness. He did a, a, a long trip in the Wemanooch wilderness and I had also done one that summer. Um, so we had been a lot of the same places and just had a lot of the same interests and just sort of, you know, friendship bloomed from there. Uh, we he came over and I think the first time I met him was we uh, tied flies together. Makes you wonder how many friends John has just from this blog post here. A lot, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot. Yeah, I I don't know if you, did you just email him? That's what I did. I just yeah, sent an email I I was sent, like, hey. <laughs> yeah, I think I just sent him an email and said, hey, you know, I think we have a lot in common and, you know, I'm interested in hearing more about your adventures and, you know, our tents were almost identical and, I mean, that we just had a lot of similarities in, in what our interests and uh, the gear we use, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, it's a cool guy to hang out with. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's not that rare for people to get together 
via email, like after reading someone's blog post. But I think uh, what's required to actually make it stick is the proximity. Like I remember I found out that he lived, you know, 20 minutes from me. And I was like, oh, we could actually meet up and grab a beer together. Yeah. And it's like I could have easily emailed many other people on the internet. And I have like emailed tons of people. And it's like I kind of know them uh, through email, but I wouldn't really consider them a friend because just because they might be in a different state or something. And just right. that proximity to him uh, made it a lot easier to yeah. kind of follow through. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask you something based on uh, something you mentioned earlier, just your progression of like you wanted to get more gear and better gear. Um, are you of the belief that people put way too much effort into gear and not enough into uh, just making their gear work? Like a nine foot five weight can take care of most of what people are trying to to catch. Um, and people might just be blaming their gear like, oh, I can't catch that because I don't have the right stuff. Um, or are you of the belief that you should spend as much as you can afford and get the best thing uh that's out there that is in your budget. Like, do you have a, have a thought on that? Um, I'm probably the wrong person to ask cause I'm kind of a gear junkie. Okay. No, that's, no, I mean, that's, that's your answer. I guess yeah. I was just wondering. No, but you know, everyone, um, has their own style and I say, you know, if you can do with what you have and that makes you happy, that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you can spend thousands and thousands of dollars on gear, tens of thousands of dollars, um, and it just depends on how much you do it. I mean, if you're only an infrequent fly fisher, you probably don't need to spend a lot on having four or five, six different rods, uh, versus if you do it for a living, obviously then, you know, you're going to wear gear out. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to have different gear for different types of fishing sometimes. So, well, I mean, and honestly, part of it's just the fun of looking at gear and having gear i mean at the end of the day i can probably cut like a six weight could handle pretty much everything i'm fishing for in colorado unless i wanted to go after like some big pike or giant bass yeah um but for the most part i could get away with that but it's like it's more fun to fight a smaller fish on a smaller rod and it's just fun to have multiple rods and be like which one do i want to use today you know it's just that's part of the fun yeah exactly well off uh the the podcast we were talking about using tankara um, that's just another whole set of different type of gear that you can use. Um, a friend of mine refers, referred to me once or told me once that, uh, I, uh, I'm sort of a, a fly fishing omnivore. I will do whatever it takes to catch a fish. Yeah. So I like use that. whatever kind of gear it takes to catch a fish. I've kind of, um, even been getting more into that outside of fly fishing. So like I, I grew up spin fishing, but, and there was a period where I basically wrote off anything but fly gear. Like I just wanted to dedicate myself to fly fishing. And I think I've done enough fly fishing at this point that like, it's still my favorite method of catching fish, but I'm kind of coming back around to, if I think that's not the most effective way to fish a body of water, I'm kind of getting back into like, you know what, maybe I'll jig for walleye. Cause I kind of want to catch a walleye. Yeah. Um, and it's starting to come back to whatever I'm, whatever is going to be the best way to catch a fish. And if, if all else is equal, I'm going to choose a fly rod. And like sure. for trout, I have really no interest in spin fishing for trout. But there are species that it's just difficult to target on a fly rod. Or, or you know, if you're trying to fish in 100 feet of water for lake trout at the bottom, like it's probably just not the best it's kind method. It's tough with a fly rod, yeah. Right. Exactly. And I'm starting to just get more appreciative of the fishing part of it. Like, yeah. like the catching the fish uh, and less less concerned about how I did it. Sure. Um, but in that same vein, it's like, there are also times where I'm like, yeah, but I want to do this one thing this one way. Like, I want to catch it on this fly. So, you know, on the other hand, sometimes I am so focused and I'm like, it's, I don't even want to do it if I can't do it 
in this particular way. Right. But it comes down to like situation to situation yeah. too. Yeah. So I don't know if that's kind of like the same boat you're in. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, um, kind of on that, that same uh, topic of you switch from fly fishing to to spin fishing and jigging for walleye, um, I did a trip to, uh, I was invited to do a trip to Canada to fish for walleye and pike. And I only brought one fly rod actually i brought two um one was just a backup in case i broke it okay yeah um so i was using primarily an eight weight that john hill actually yellowfin rods built for me shout out shout out for john <laughs> um yeah and uh we did a uh, uh a day it was it was a derby day just to see how many walleye we could catch and i was i was catching fish in all the days previous um, but for whatever reason, I was really struggling on this one day and finally I was just like, you know what, hand me a spin cast rod and let me jig off the bottom because I just could not catch a walleye. Mm-hmm. And it's hard, even with the sinking line, to get down there and jig with a with a fly rod. It just yeah, doesn't work well. It's different. It's, it's totally different. Yeah. So I put my fly rod away. I got a, a, a spin casting rod and I was jigging and, and I was catching fish. Yeah, I think it comes down to I'd rather catch a fish on a spin rod than not catch anything on a fly yeah. rod. Like yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd rather catch a fish on a fly rod generally, but yeah. I'd rather catch a fish than nothing at all. I so. just love catching fish. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, uh, my next venture is bait casting. I've mm. never really used a bait casting rod, and you know I've got plenty of experience with spin gear, and sometimes that's the right thing, but sometimes bait casting is the right thing, and I feel a little bit out of my element. Like I bought a bait casting rod, I'm like reading the instructions and going on YouTube. I'm like, this is what it felt like to start fly fishing and it's it's fun to kind of be yeah. so new that you make like large progressions like i'm sure that you've been fly fishing long enough that when you go out you might learn a thing or two every time you go out but you're not making like big strides in your fly fishing like you're right. generally pretty solid but when you first started fly fishing the first five times you went out you probably increased your skill like many times over every single time yeah and that's like a fun stage to be in yeah. when every time you come out you're like i learned so much today you learn a little bit of, you know, oh, this oh, this is how this works. Right. You learn from your mistakes. Just don't make the mistakes more than once. <laughs> <laughs> or just make them over and over, over. again like most yeah. of us yeah. do. <laughs> so tell me how you got um, into this project of fishing all the wilderness areas in Colorado. Um, well, I didn't fish all of them. It was more of a, it was a, um, it was a goal of mine um, to backpack every, every wilderness area in Colorado. And I was very much interested in, in fishing as well, fly fishing. And so, you know, the rod always came with me. And wherever I went, I tried to find some place to fish. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't always work out. I think there were five out of all of them that I, I ended up not fishing. Is that um, just because there wasn't a ton of water or like um, where you were? It was part of it. Or I just, you know, I was more focused on just getting there. And there wasn't a convenient place to, to, to fish. Um it usually ended up being a lake, but every once in a while, um, some of the wilderness areas, there weren't any lakes. And so I just fish a small stream. So it was more, um, where I went within the wilderness than, um, than anything. But, um, so, but it was what inspired me. Well, there's a couple of things that inspired me was I had blown up my knee skiing and I've always loved backpacking. I've been backpacking since I was, you know, a, a young teenager. Um, and so when I blew out my knee, 
one of the first things that I thought was, oh my gosh, am I ever going to be able to put a backpack on again? That literally in the hospital, I'm sitting there with my knee blown out. And that's the first thing I think about was, am I ever going to be able to backpack again? And so um, when I finally got my knee recovered and I I wore a brace for a number of years, um, I uh, decided, you know, life is too short, carpe diem. Um, I, uh, I said, I need to go, you know, see if I can do a, do a trip. Uh, and so I hired a lady and did a, a llama trip into the flat tops wilderness. Um, and I was like, all right, well, this is going to be a good test for me. I won't have to carry my, my gear. The llamas will carry my gear, but it'll give me a test of, can I walk in five miles or six miles? with my knee in the condition that it's in um, and I'll have a day pack and it'll just be a good test. So everything went well and um, I hadn't really done a whole lot of backpacking into many wilderness areas in Colorado up until that point. I'd been to, you know, the Sangre Cristos, the Collegiates, um, and I'd never even heard about the Flat Tops Wilderness at that time. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. There's a fishing there. Yep, there's fishing. Okay, let's do it. Um, Maybe it's probably one of the fishingest wilderness areas in, in Colorado. <laughs> yeah, it, there's some phenomenal fishing in the flat tops. Um, yeah, there's some, some great fishing there. But uh, so anyways, that that just kind of led me to start thinking about life is short. You got to take advantage of, you know, opportunities. And um, I found a book, Colorado's Wilderness Areas by uh, uh, John Fielder. I'm going to take a picture and, of that. And <laughs> uh, this is, this is a the first edition, so it's a really old edition. It's got all kinds of notes and scribbles and all kinds of things in it. Um, but that was my Bible. And as I started looking at more and different wilderness areas, um, I thought, well, shoot, that'd be kind of cool to just backpack every one of them. And so I'm dating myself here, but uh, when I was 30, uh, it was 1996, I said, I want to backpack every wilderness area in Colorado. By the time I, I turned, by the end of the summer, I turned 35. So I gave myself five years. And there were 33 of them at the time. Are there okay. more now? Yeah. There's 40, 41, I think, or two. I'm always surprised. Like, I, I still learn new ones. Like, I, I, most of the big ones, I feel like I'm familiar with or have visited myself. But occasionally, I'll be scrolling around on X and I turn on wilderness. And I'm like, oh, there's a wilderness area there that I had no idea about. And it's, you know, the farther you get from Denver and the smaller the area... It's, it's easy to find new ones that you've never heard of. So there were 33 at the time. There's eight more now. So what is that? 41. Yep. So, um, yeah, so there's quite a few more. Some of them were proposed wilderness areas at the time. So it, uh, when I backpacked into Rocky Mountain National Park, it was a proposed wilderness at the time, and it, it's now our wilderness. But what, what Indian Peaks or? Um, Rocky Mountain National Park. Is that considered a wilderness area? Yeah. So oh. there's parts of it that are considered a wilderness. Same with uh, the Great Sand Dunes. Um, parts of that have been designated wilderness. I guess I thought they were, had different names. Like I thought, I thought Indian Peaks like basically butted up to Rocky Mountain, but they were technically different. They are. Um, so you got Indian Peaks Wilderness, and then within Rocky Mountain National Park itself, there are certain portions of it that are designated oh. official wilderness. Okay, now. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. I just assumed that it was a completely separate ordeal. They're separate designations but within it's fairly new so um do you know where in rocky mountain it is like i don't know where the boundaries are but um it i think it's a couple different sections so the southern section kind of um uh forest 
can't think Forest of Canyon? Forest Canyon area. Mm-hmm. I think that's part wilderness. And then the far the northern section of the of the uh, Rocky Mountain National Park, I think, is also designated wilderness. I, I can't remember where the exact boundaries are. But huh. I'll have to look at it. Do you know what it's called? Is it's it just like just Rocky, Rocky Mountain National, National Park, Park wilderness? wilderness? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Learn something new every yeah. day. <laughs> um, same for uh, the Great Sand Dunes, a portion of that, because the, that whole area was expanded. The, the national park was expanded into the Sangres, the Sangre de Cristo mm-hmm. Mountains, and they, um, so that portion that is the park is also wilderness. It overlaps. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I thought that was another one of those like wilderness butts right up against the national park. Yeah, but it's a, it's a wilderness within the park. Hmm. Um, I mean, it makes sense. A lot of, I mean, national parks are pretty built up with roads and stuff, but the parts that are not built up with right. roads, a lot of them are, you might hike 10 miles in and yeah. see absolutely nobody and, right. and there's nothing there. So, I mean, it makes sense that there would be an area within the national park that could be designated as wilderness. Yep. I mean, 90% of the people that visit park probably don't ever get don't off the road. the road. Yep. Yeah. So, um, I think Mesa Verde was, is, there's parts of Mesa Verde that national park, they're also wilderness. I think that is, and I just realize that when I was looking these things up recently. Um, I think that's a fairly new designation. Um, so, um, so yeah, there's, there's more now that I should probably do. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but I think you mentioned that you had done all, but maybe three, uh, and were those, were the ones that you hadn't completed ones that had newly been newly created and that's why you hadn't done them or had you just not quite finished your list yet i backpacked all of them i didn't i wasn't able to fly fish in all okay. of them okay and so, have you have you backpacked all of them at this point or are there new ones that there's you're... new those eight new ones i have not backpacked okay um so yeah and some of them are, are more desert so uh black canyon of the gunnison gunnison gorge um there's one that is i can't think of the name of it it's over on the western slope near colorado national monument Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've seen that one on the map. Yeah, and then there's a little tiny one uh, that's actually up uh, on the border of Wyoming, the North Platte uh, wilderness that goes into Wyoming. Oh, so interesting. Th- I think I'm going to be up there at the end of November. I'd yeah, like to th- check that there's out. a little tiny section in Colorado. Um, I haven't looked at what the boundaries are, but it's it's somewhere there along the North Platte. Is it uh, is it actually larger, Like, but it's mostly in Wyoming? Or is it there, actually just really tiny? I, the Colorado portion is small, but I think it extends into Wyoming. It might have a different name when it gets into Wyoming. Like in the Medicine Bow National Forest yeah, area? Yeah, on the west side there of the Medicine Bow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's there's more. that The Spanish Peaks um, was one that was proposed for a long time. Um, and then there's some down around Durango uh, that were proposed at the time that I, I didn't go into some of these roadless areas that were proposed wilderness um and there's more that are still proposed that just haven't been designated so the list grows now did you have um like stipulations for yourself on what counted <laughs> in terms of like i feel like backpacking is pretty clear like if you carry your stuff in and sleep a night yeah. you know at in in a tent that you carried in a backpack that's backpacking um was that separate from your goal to fly fish or was it like i have to fly fish while i'm backpacking or could, could you just like walk in for the day and like did you, how how rigid was your uh, so i did have some rules criteria. i figured well i've got to have some ground rules because you know whenever you're setting a goal like that for accomplishing something there has to be some some guidelines so right. my guideline was i'm going to backpack and my official um uh, you know, rule around backpacking was I need to go in at least a mile and I need to spend the night. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty liberal. <laughs> right. Like it wouldn't be considered like a big hardcore backpacking trip, but technically you, yeah. you know, stayed there and yeah. you were away from 
civilization a right. little bit. <laughs> I think the easiest one I did was um, because there was a trail uh, and it was downhill from the parking lot was in Sarvis Creek, which is mm-hmm. just south of Steamboat. I went in a mile, maybe, and camped next to the creek and I fished for brook trout in, in Sarvis Creek. The deadfall back there is yeah. incredible Yeah, in a bad way. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's the same in the flat tops. Uh, yeah, but the flat tops at least has big areas of meadow yeah. in between yeah. the trees. Sarvis Creek, not so much. Yeah, Sarvis Creek's just like valleys of deadfall. And so, I mean, the zircles are kind of the same way. Yeah. I think everywhere in Colorado now has just so much more deadfall from the beetle kill yeah. than it used to. It's crazy. Yeah, that, that's, that area is the worst I've seen, though, is like up in that steamboat area, yeah. which we love that area, but... Man, going off trail there is it's it's quite an adventure. Yeah, it's brutal. Yep. So what was, uh, you said that was the shortest you did. What was, yeah. what was the longest you've done? Um, so the longest trip was, um, was kind of one of the highlights actually of, uh, of my five years of backpacking wilderness areas. Um, I did a, I took two weeks off from work and I did two back to back one week long uh, backpack trips so I spent a week as far about north as you could in Zirkel had one day off to unpack repack get a massage and then <laughs> went down to the South San Juan and backpacked uh, almost to the New Mexico border uh, in the next week so that was nine days uh, in on Saturday and out on the following Sunday probably a lot of driving um, in between there was a lot of driving in between yeah uh, we had to do a car shuttle uh, in the South San Juan because we did a point-to-point on the uh, CDT. Okay, cool. The Continental Divide Trail. So it was 42 miles of just amazing. We dipped below 11,000 feet, I think, twice, um, where we camped below 11,000 feet. So we were above tree line the entire time. It was just phenomenal. And I think we only saw two groups of people for the entire week. Wow. Yeah. And I, so was, was that the trip? amazing. That you marked on your uh, sheet beforehand, the Zirkel San Juan trip, which it sounds like one of, was one of your favorites. Yeah, that it was that combo. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Just being out for two weeks straight, um, being at altitude for that long, I felt superhuman when I came back to oh, sure. <laughs> down to, to Denver and uh, you know do a day hike. It's like, hey, I'm used to being eleven thousand feet. My body's got all kinds of you know extra oxygen in it <laughs> right it's like when we travel back to the, our families on the east coast and we can go for a run and yeah. just run 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 endlessly yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly so that was that was pretty phenomenal did you um, have any highlights from the fishing uh in particular on those trips like any unique species you caught or just really cool places you got to fish no unique species um in zirkel we did uh i had always been sort of eyeing this drainage in zirkel that had no the entire drainage had no trails in it and there's there's a few of them in there um so we bushwhacked up into a drainage and there were three lakes sort of stair-stepped in elevation up the drainage and uh camped in the middle one and um just fished all three and i actually my my buddy that i was with um got blisters about the size of silver dollars on both of his heels so he was he was pretty much in camp and i wanted to go check out these other lakes um and i actually spent a day I hiked out of the drainage, bushwhacked up over the Continental Divide, down into another drainage on the other side, and fished a lake over there and came back um, just by myself. And I didn't see a single person the whole time. It was it was pretty awesome. Yeah, people talk, I mean, we were talking before we started about just how crowded Colorado is getting, but it's it's 
not that hard to get away from people if you just leave a trail. Yeah. Like leaving a oh, road yeah. isn't isn't uh, going to get you away from people. Right. You know, if you hike five miles back, but you're on a, an established trail that people are logging every day on all trails, you're not. I mean, you're still going to see probably dozens of people. Uh, but the moment you leave a trail, which is something that uh, really only seems to happen for me when I'm either fishing or hunting. Like it doesn't happen a lot via other activities. Like biking kind of stays on trails. Um, I know, I guess climbers probably get off the trail every now and then, but there's often a trail to where the good climbing spots are, but fishing and hunting really take you away from people just because if you want to go somewhere that there's not a trail to, you're going to just leave it. And yeah. the moment you get off that trail, you stop seeing people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, it used to be, well, the distance is now getting longer, uh, as Colorado gets a bit more crowded, but I used to have the, the three mile rule cause you start losing the day hikers. Um, I had to expand that to the five mile rule where you start losing the day hikers and now it's probably closer to seven mile rule. Um, but if, you know, you go at least seven miles in, you're going to start losing a lot of the day hikers that, you know, just kind of come and go. Um, but yeah, getting off the trail, in fact, that's how I find a lot of the lakes that I fish is I'll just open up a map and I'll find a lake that doesn't have a trail to it. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I'm going to go there. And John hates me for it because <laughs> I've drug he and John or he and Tommy to some of the some of the worst places, uh, just trying to bushwhack in. Um, so we've had we've had some great adventures just trying to get into these lakes, and you never know what you're going to get when you get there. Right, because it, especially the ones off trail, you're probably not going to be able to get reports. Yeah, as much because right. you know they might get fished handful of times a year. Sure. I don't I don't want to uh, blow up any spots. And I don't even know if you were on this trip, but there's a spot in the circles that he has told me about. And I'm not sure if you were on that trip. I but was. He described it as being like one of the worst experiences yeah. of his life. I was. Getting in there. Yeah. I think we climbed over probably a thousand trees, down trees. It was crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know the exact trip that he's talking <laughs> about. Yeah. I was like, was it better or worse than Golden Trout? Because the Golden Trout... Um, you know, the spot that the, the he wrote the blog post about was yep. not easy to get into either. It was probably one of the harder hikes I've done. Um, and a lot of that was off trail over deadfall as well. But I know what the circles are like. Yeah. And if I copied and pasted the circles onto what I did on Golden Trout, I would describe it as way worse just because Golden Trout had at least a decent amount of rock, walking over boulders or mm. uh, meadows instead of forests. Right. And man. Boulder I, fields <laughs> are pose their own unique challenge to cross with a backpack on <laughs> yeah as a short person deadfall is worse for yeah, me yes because i might I be agree. trying to step over something as tall as my waist yep i agree time. when you got a 50 pound pack on your back and it's like I, I can't go under it i gotta go over it and it's up to my chest how do i do this yeah i, I distinctly remember watching my friend fall onto her backpack and she like couldn't get up because like feet were up on the tree and <laughs> backpack was on the ground underneath her and she's like i can't get up like it's a turtle like, yeah and i think i think i remember john mentioning that he like broke some trekking poles yep. He broke both Similar of his trekking poles. Yep. <laughs> yep. I think everyone went down on that trip um, in one way or another just because of, you know, no trail, lots of trees, uh, vegetation that was waist high. So you couldn't see where you were stepping. Yep. Uh, super wet. It rained the whole time we were there. Uh, yeah. It was. That Sounds was amazing. That was. Yeah. Well. I actually want to go back. The, the The other three are like, you're crazy, man. We're not ever going to go back there. <laughs> well, he told me about another guy that. Um, he knows and I kind of know via like an Instagram message thread. Uh, and he said that he had great luck up there. Yeah. So I guess I guess it might be worth going back. I, yeah. He hasn't sold me on trying to get up there. but um, I also found that there are um, whitefish in Ooh. that in the in the river 
Now but, you're talking. Yeah. That's that's my favorite thing to and catch. And I, I kind of wanted to stop on the way down and fish, and everyone was just so focused on getting the heck out of there that we didn't fish. But um, I would love to go back because I think you can get to, to spots where you could fish fairly easily from the parking lot um, and not have to do a whole lot of work. So I might need to uh, discuss with you because yeah. I don't know. I don't want to go off on a huge tangent, but I love fishing for whitefish. We actually just went this weekend specifically targeting whitefish. Yeah. And uh, no one else seems to enjoy talking about them, but I, I love uh, them so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Grayling and whitefish are something that's very unique. Whitefish is, you know, native to Colorado and. Um, they're in super fast, you know, small streams, and they're fun to catch. They're hard to catch. They have little tiny mouths. Mouths hard to hook sometimes. Yeah, they're hard to hook. I like them because they put up a bigger fight than a trout. Yeah. I feel like the trout will give me a, a quick twitch on the fly rod, but I can generally get them in pretty quick, and the whitefish just, like, pulls. Yeah. And that's what I like. They, they love really swift water, so... Um, they're fun to catch. Yeah. Um, but back to the Zirkles, was that your, would you say that's your favorite, uh, wilderness, wilderness fishing experience you've had? Um, boy, it's so hard. It, I knew you were going to ask me what was my favorite, you know, wilderness. They're all so unique. I mean, the flat tops has some of the most amazing fishing. There's some big, big fish in the flat tops. Um, they're not easy to get to. They're not easy to catch. Um, Probably one of the, the most unique fishing experiences that I had was actually in the Wemenooch Wilderness. Um, that's just such a massive wilderness area, and there's. I think that's the biggest one in Colorado. It is the biggest one in Colorado. Um, second is Flat Tops. The third actually uh, is the Sangre de Cristos, which doesn't seem like really. It. Yeah, I would have put that down on like halfway down the list. I know. I would guess Lost Creek was bigger. Circles big, bigger. Yeah, uh, I guess I just don't it, know. because it's just so long. It doesn't seem like it's big because it's very narrow. But um, size-wise, it's it's either the third or fourth. I could look in the book here, but anyways, it's it's up there surprisingly. Um, that one has some big fish too. Yes, absolutely, it does. There's some great some great places. Uh, the Sangres are steep. <laughs> they are gnarly. They are one of the that's the hardest hike I've ever done. I think is into some of the lakes in the Sangres. Really? Yeah. It. Uh... They're steep. It doesn't seem like it would be that bad because it's just such a, like a small blip on the map. Yeah. I mean, it's just like a little ribbon of mountains and you're like, yeah. yeah, but in the deep mountains, it would be so much bigger. And it's like, no, they just come right out of the plains like a, yep. like a spire basically. Yeah. You're, you're going a thousand feet plus per mile in, in some of those trails. Yeah. So, but one of my favorite for just the fishing experience was um, probably the Wemenooch. Um, we spent an entire week and took us took us three days between driving and hiking to get to the final destination where we wanted to set up base camp. Wow. So, yeah. So just, just to get down there is, you know, a day's drive to Creed and then four wheeling in almost 30 miles to a, a trailhead and then a, a two-day trek into this lake. And I won't name the magazine because it'll probably give it away, but um, I didn't choose this location because of it. I found out like right before the trip, uh, this particular location that I picked to, to set up base camp and fish the lakes around it was deemed the most remote spot in the lower 48 to backpack into. Well, that's appealing. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, cool. I'm going there next week. <laughs> oh, so you just, you just found out by chance then. Yeah. I just was reading in this magazine uh, an article about this place where I happened to be, had already planned to go, and this trip was already planned. Was it a specific... Uh, like how, I mean, how specific do they get? Do they say like this lake or this drainage? Yeah. Or? Oh, okay. it was very specific. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
there weren't any fish in that lake, oddly enough. Well, that's a bummer. <laughs> yeah, it was a major bummer. But um, Did I found, you know that going in? I think it had a history of being stocked. But, so I it's mean, possible. We, we spent three or four days camping next to this lake, and I never saw a rise, never saw a cruiser. Um, I didn't walk, in, walk entirely around it, but, it, I mean, it was a pretty good-sized lake, but I didn't see a single fish. Okay. Um, and had some reports from some guys that were coming out as we were going in, and I asked them about a couple of places that I was thinking about, and they're like, yeah, we went there, we didn't see anything. Um, and that's just, that's one of the things you, you know, you have to deal with when you're backpacking into high lakes is, you know, you can get, you can call the CPW or, or ask them about, you know, the stocking, but they stock it and they don't always necessarily have reports of what's the condition of the fish. Right. I think John mentioned at one point asking them and they were like, you tell us when you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I've given a lot of reports to, to the aquatic biologists at, at the CPW because, um, they don't always have time to get to, I mean, there's thousands of lakes in Colorado. They just can't get to them all. Right. Um, and they don't always know the condition and, you know, they may have gone there last year and that winter they they winter killed so you just you don't know unless they happen to have been in there uh recently you know that summer right so. i think that's what i like having a couple different places to fish like if you're going in blind like that and you're not really sure yeah it's really nice to have a couple different spots in the area that way if like when we went to the flat tops um i guess maybe two years ago now uh one of the lakes there i think john after the fact had told me that they caught a bunch of fish out of one of those lakes and we didn't see a single thing and we're like, I guess, you know, maybe it's just died off since then. But then I think reverse, he was like, oh, we didn't see any fish in that lake. And I was like, oh, we caught a bunch of brook trout out of there. Yeah. So it's like things just, you just you never know, they know. change. Yeah. But in the flat tops, it's not hard to find somewhere else to go. Oh, yeah. If you're like, there's, there's no fish in here. Right. But that lake over there that I can see has got fish. Yep. There's multiple lakes in <laughs> right. every drainage. So, yeah, when I when I uh, did this trip in the Weminooch, um, there were literally lakes along the entire route. And uh, we had to bushwhack to some other ones that, I mean, just getting into one of the drainages, I was like, oh, there's two lakes over here. I th I think I had found that they had a history of being stocked, but no idea. There's no trail to them. It's kind of a, a, you know, gnarly climb to get up over the ridge to get down into them and found amazing fish at one of them. And the other one, I think, had been overstocked because all the fish were super stunted, big heads, little bodies. And I think I caught like 80 fish in the course of 30 minutes oh man <laughs> i mean i was using a two-fly rig and i was cat literally the second that fly hit the water there's like 10 fish after it because they were so hungry it was it was crazy i mean that like needs a couple people to keep some fish out. yeah exactly <laughs> it was it was definitely in not in the healthiest of condition just because it was way overpopulated and the mm -hmm. fish were just starving um it was fun to fish for them because you couldn't miss. Right. But. He was going to turn down 80 fish. <laughs> I was, I was getting tired of pulling the fish, you know, off the hook. Cause it was just literally every single cast. And just, you know, that's when you go barbless. So you can just kind of shake them off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> pull them. I, I always pinch my barbs just because it makes it so much easier to get the fish off. Yeah. So, so tell me about the railroad. Cause this, I think it was related to the women. Yes. The, the railroad. And I, it had never occurred to me to wonder whether a railroad counted as basically like motorized traffic because you're you're thinking things like bikes and uh cars and stuff yeah. like that or helicopters landing yeah. in wilderness areas but it i'm like i don't know railroads kind of one of the more primitive yeah modes of transport it was, it was it's kind of a cool uh it's kind of a cool deal um that was a separate trip from when i spent a weekend where it took us three okay. days to get in but so that was my first uh trip into the weminuch wilderness um 
while I was on my, you know, five-year uh, trek to, to do them all. So we, um, there were four of us. Uh, we booked a, uh, a ticket on the Durango and Silverton Railroad, which goes from Durango to Silverton, obviously. It was originally built uh, during the, the mining era down there. Um, in the 1800s to carry the, the ore out of the mines and down to Durango to be to be processed and so now it's just a it's a tourist attraction but you can purchase a one-way ticket either to Silverton or, or uh, you can also purchase a, um, a ticket to be on the train with your backpack and they actually throw your backpack in a um, uh, in a different car that they have just for, for luggage and stuff. Mm -hmm. And you tell them where you want to get off and they will stop the train. Really? You get off the train and they throw your, they literally, they don't hand you your backpack. They throw it off the train. <laughs> so you better, you better have your stuff packed well. They throw it off the train and see you later. Wow, um, something was just added to my bucket list. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> um, I assume they still do it. That was it was a long time ago, but I think that I'm pretty sure they still do it. But you did, you need to tell them which, and there are specific stops along the way that they will let you off. Oh, so you can't do it just anywhere, right? You have to oh, tell I them. Oh, I thought you meant you could just like give them GPS coordinates and be like, "Stop the train! I'm getting off right here." Yeah, they uh, they have certain stops uh, where they will let you off. Um, okay. And okay. there's some 14ers down in the Weminooch that um, I guess it's pretty popular to take the train and go up into this basin and climb the 14ers. We went to a different one just because we were trying to avoid people. Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't see a single person the entire week. So does this um, like border the wilderness or are you a couple of miles from the wilderness and you're walking through national forest to get there? It's a cherry stem. So literally the, the wilderness boundary, once you get up in there, is right up against the the railroad so there's a you know i don't know probably a couple hundred yards or so maybe between where the tracks are and the edge of the wilderness boundary okay so basically it's going through the wilderness but not technically because right. it can't so it, it's because it can't it's, yeah so there's a okay. cherry stem basically and the the Weminooch was expanded to include some area on the west side of the rail tracks in the Animus River um, that didn't used to be there. So it literally just bisects uh, the wilderness. There's sort of a chunk of the Weminooch that's off by itself that is completely separated by the railroad that goes through there. Oh, um, that's, that's kind of an interesting it setup. It is kind of cool. But we put our packs on and we hiked in about, I don't know, five or six miles and um, set up our tents up on this basin. It was just, it was amazing. Um, got some amazing uh, sunsets and rainbows and there's all kinds of mining history so there's some old mining operation you know buildings and old mines that were near where we camped and unfortunately there weren't any fish uh, at the lake where we camped um, and I, I made one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made while backpacking we were just sort of rummaging around some of the old mines uh, in the buildings and uh, I'd seen on the map there was a there was a lake on a a a, a, a a basin just above sort of a, a mesa above where we were camped and there was a this coolar that went up it was just a total rock you know really uh -huh. narrow 30-foot coolar that went up into this basin that was surrounded by sheer cliffs i was like well i think we can get up there we just scamper up this coolar and i did in my fly rod i left it back at camp and you know i wasn't i thought oh, i wonder if i should go back and get my fly rod i was like yeah yeah there's probably not anything up there anyways so get up there. It's full of rainbows. 
<laughs> I was like, why wouldn't ah, you take your rod? <laughs> I, I just, I didn't feel like turn around and go back to Rule camp. Rule number one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Carry my rod. So I, I always carry my rod now. I just throw it in my day pack. No matter where I go, it's always in my day pack. Well, that's kind of what we were talking about. I mean, this probably, this trip probably wasn't, uh, you know, you'd have to kind of plan for it, but um, this is kind of the situation where we were talking about Tankara earlier, where you're like, I'm not really going to fish, yeah. but just in the off chance that there's something there, I should throw this really lightweight, yep. um, really hassle-free rod in my backpack. It yep. takes up no space. That way, in case, I can pull it out pretty quickly and get yep. some casts out. Yeah. I'll throw it on the back of my Jeep if I'm going somewhere. It's like, yeah, I might find a small stream on the side of the road that I want to stop and just fish. I'll just throw my Tankara right. rod in the back of the Jeep and, you know, if I feel like stopping, I'll stop. Yep makes it easy so one of the uh things that you marked on your list that maybe the most interesting thing that anyone's ever uh said they want to talk about is cannibals devils and attack owl <laughs> i'm not even sure what any of that means uh but oh. i'm intrigued and i want to know what yeah what <clears throat> trip uh resulted in that description <laughs> so about a quarter of my trips during this five-year period um i did solo it's really hard sometimes to find someone uh, to go backpacking with, mm-hmm. um, especially, I mean, I took, I took some time off in there, um, uh, off from work. So I was going during the middle of the week and it's hard sometimes just to find someone to go with. So I was going solo. So I had planned to do the Powderhorn Wilderness, which is, um, between Lake City and Creed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I picked out where I wanted to go. I try to avoid places where there's a lot of people. So, you know, the guidebook says, oh, go to Powderhorn Lakes. It's popular. It's like, okay, well, I'm not going to go there. I'm going right. to go somewhere else. So I went to a different drainage right over the right over the mesa from there. And um, uh, it's called uh, uh, Devil's Lake. Yeah, Devil's Lake. Um, and it was kind of interesting. I was by myself. And I don't know if you know the story of Alfred Packer. Yeah. The, the Colorado cannibal. I think there's a restaurant named for him in Boulder. Yeah, there <laughs> is. It's kind of yeah. funny. Um, but there's there's a great book. It's out of print. I have a copy of it. But it's it's it was written by a, a local. Uh, I think he lives in. I think he actually lives in Littleton. He was a judge. Uh, he's a retired judge. He wrote this book. Uh, he wanted to get the facts about, you know, Alfred Packer. I don't want to go down on a tangent. But Alfred Packer, supposedly where he ate his victims was down in that area uh, around Lake City. When you say get the facts, is this in regards to, I feel like there's been, um, I don't, I don't know the, I don't know the story in detail. Yeah. I just know him as like the cannibal guy who ate people in Colorado. But uh, I, I think I am kind of familiar with what you're talking about. Like it's not fully certain whether he like killed and ate people or, you know, if someone in his group dies, like, are they trying to survive off that like there, there's a bit of a difference between yeah eating someone to survive and eating someone out of i don't know malice <laughs> right he didn't yeah i mean you have to you have to just use the facts that are known and you know it's his word against everyone else in that party that died so yeah yeah I mean, so what are you gonna do, are you gonna do? right so this uh, judge is just they, trying to make like the best educated guess right, i guess based on the facts okay. that are known of the stories that were told during the court hearings um etc so yeah, he they were stuck down there in the winter, um, and you know they were dying. And supposedly, at least one of the one of the the guys that he was with came after him, and he you know hit him with something in in self defense and killed him. And and everyone in the party supposedly 
ate this person's flesh to survive because that's all they had. I mean, wasn't part of the story that he had misled people by telling them that he was a guide that knew the way through the mountains and then he didn't and was just like basically leading them on not a wild goose chase because they weren't chasing anything, but was basically wandering through the mountains blind. Uh, he like It sounded was, like he kind of already duped he, them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he did know... They were going down the San Juans. They started in Breckenridge, which is, that's a long trek for walking. Um, so, you know, maybe he didn't know the train, but it was it was in the wintertime. So they just, they got stranded. Okay. Um, and, you know, they were freezing to death. They had to survive. Uh, you know, you see, you see these stories elsewhere uh, where people are eating just to survive, eating other, other people that die in certain circumstances. I mean, I think most people... Not that they'd want to eat a person, but like can at least kind of sympathize with if you're if if it's life and death for you yeah. to eat someone who's already dead, right? And you know that's going to keep you alive. I think most people would say, yeah, it's not great, but you know it, yeah. it, it's it is what it is, right? Um, but I feel like at least the sensationalized story about him was that he had not necessarily done it that way, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, anyways, um, this area is near there, near that site, uh, near Lake City. And the lake is called Devil's Lake. The, because of that? Or is it, no, uh, I, I don't, it already called I don't Devil's think Lake? So. Okay. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I don't know why it's called Devil's Lake, but that's that was the name of it. Okay. But it's right next to Cannibal Plateau, <laughs> okay. right? That that surely wasn't named that before. Right. <laughs> so that was obviously because of its location and, and the history of, of that area. Um, I was by myself, and I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I felt very uncomfortable when I was at the trailhead and going up the trail. I mean, I had solo backpacked a lot, and so it was nothing foreign to me. I felt very comfortable uh, backpacking by myself and going solo. Was it just like an uneasiness of being in a I, place that just didn't have good I, yeah, juju? I, it, yeah, <laughs> just, it, I, don't, I can't describe it. It just, I was, I just didn't feel comfortable. I was like, I don't, I don't know why I'm feeling this way. I, I was anxious yeah. about the trip, you know, packing my pack at the trailhead and going up the trail, and there was nobody up there. I was the only one. I was completely by myself. I didn't see a single person on the trail. There's nobody else on the trailhead. Um, and I get up above tree line and it's a massive area of just unbroken um, alpine tundra. So there's nothing for, you know, it's very kind of flat and rolly. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, a lot of big steep peaks. And uh, get up above tree line and I get to an area where there's you know, some rock formations and I kind of lean up against the rock formations, just kind of take a break. And I look over and there's these two little critter skeletons on the rock next to me. And I was like, oh, that's nice. (laughs) And it was a mouse or, you know, a little ground squirrel or what, but they're just, they were just a skeleton, like an entire full skeleton. I was like, well, that's weird. I'm on Cannibal Plateau approaching Devil's Lake and I got skeletons. Well, I mean, at least they weren't human skeletons. <laughs> they weren't human skeletons, thankfully, right? So, but still, um, but still uneasy. Yeah, it was just, it was just weird. So I get down, I set up camp, um, I fish the lake, and um, it's just after sunset. I'm finishing up my, I'm finished, I'm finishing my dinner. I'm just, you know, finishing up eating, cooking, and eating my dinner, sitting in front of my tent, and I was, I don't know, I was probably. 100 yards or so from the lake and out of the corner of my eye I kind of caught some movement and I I look over and I see something literally about two feet off the ground coming towards me but it's hovering 
And I was like, what the heck is that? So it was far enough away because it was you know, way down by the lake. And as it starts approaching me, I'm thinking, well, that's an owl. And it's flying literally like, you know, I'm sitting on the ground. It's about my shoulder height and it's flying straight at me, straight at me. And it's not, you know, veering off. So it's very purposefully flying towards me and it comes right to me and just does a real quick, you know, up and over my head. You know, I had to duck oh, almost weird. to keep it from hitting me. And so I was like, oh, that's weird. Why is this owl like attacking me? <laughs> um, so, you know, I finished my dinner, went to bed. Uh, sometimes you have to get up in the middle of the night to, you know, go pee. <laughs> so I get up in the middle of the night, I walk out to my tent and I saw movement like right on the side of my tent. And I did, you know, I was like, what the heck was that? Again, I'm by myself, uh-huh. so you know everything's scarier you're on, than it you're would on be. hyper yeah. alert. You know when you're by yourself, uh, and so I was like, "All right, well, whatever." So I'm, you know, doing my thing, and and I look over, and this owl is doing the same thing. It's coming right at me. Same owl. I assume it's the same owl. Okay, I don't like, know that for it looks sure. The same, like, looks the same. Okay. I'm in the same area. Does and, and this is I don't know midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and it's coming at me the exact same way, and you know like comes right over my head almost like he's he's trying to dive bomb me i don't think i'd handle this well yeah like so i, I thinking, backpack alone sometimes heck? but something about this would not sit right yeah. with me. <laughs> and so i'm thinking what what is possessing this owl you know five hours six hours later to be doing the same thing to me and it i didn't really you know it was bugging me why this why this owl was doing this and so when i got home i started doing a little bit of research and i found that there are burrowing owls that live above tree line. Oh, okay. I was probably somewhere near his his or her burrow. Which explains the rodent skeletons. Right, could be. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, that's a lot, you know, better than it's haunted by the ghost of Alfred Packard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was very unnerving that, you know, all these sequence of events and where I was and just the history of it all. But it was, it was an amazing trip. Um, there was a lot of forest fires that summer and so the sunsets were you know on top of all this the sunsets were like blood red uh and uh i did see some cool there was a whole herd of like 30 elk that were up on top of the the ridge probably i don't know a mile away and at sunset and they're just silhouetted on the ridge and they actually made their way all the way down to my camp and walked right by me Oh, that's I just, cool. I just sat there behind a bush and just watched them come all the way down and walked right by me. It was pretty cool. Yeah, that, that's a, I don't know, it, it sounds like it went from a kind of a spooky experience to a more enjoyable, and, yeah. I don't know, mesmerizing experience. Yeah, but that was just, that was one of the most bizarre solo trips I've ever, I, I had ever had. Uh, I haven't had any, you know, I've never been anxious or felt like that before. I don't, I, again, I don't know why, but it was just, it was weird. It's easy, I think, when you're backpacking alone to get a little bit too much in your own head. And yeah. I, I try to do it a couple times a year, usually just for a night or two, uh, to face my fears. Yeah. Because I have like weird dreams sometimes when I'm backpacking alone. Like I'll wake up or I'll be, you know, that semi-awake state where you're kind of asleep. You're kind of dreaming, but your senses are still firing a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And uh I will like swear I hear something outside my tent or more often I feel like I see a headlamp outside my tent. Like I feel like my tent is lit up. Um, that often <laughs> happens if there's a full moon or something. Right. I'm convinced that there's someone outside my tent. But one time there was, uh, I woke up to a person outside my tent with a Ooh. headlamp. And I think maybe that has like stuck. Yeah. It was the very first time I backpacked alone. That'd be a little, uh, a little creepy. Yeah. There was someone outside my tent looking for a missing hiker. Huh. 
So it, that was, you know, not a great introduction to sure. backpacking alone. Yeah, right. Uh, and I don't know if that's just stuck with me or what, but I, I often like startle awake thinking that there's somebody standing outside my tent looking into it with a headlamp. Uh, <laughs> but it, I feel like that's kind of a little bit healthy to yeah. have, to put yourself in something that makes you come out feeling like you yeah. overcame some sort of uneasiness. And I think especially where you were, you know, in, in cannibal land. Uh, which I'm happy to hear that the description did not involve actual cannibals. Like I was like, I don't know what this guy experienced when he was out there, but I know I did not, I did not eat another human. I may have eaten some fish, but that was it. Yeah. I saw that description. I was like, man, either he did something really awful or he witnessed something really awful. No. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's, it's good to face, uh, do something that's uncomfortable. Um, you know, I think it makes you stronger mentally. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you sort of get over that fear. It's like, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. Yeah. It makes things after that seem not as bad. Yeah. Like if you've got somebody with you, you're like, well, you know, I've got a buddy here. Yeah. This is great. <laughs> well, there's, you know, there's definitely risk to going by yourself. Um, yeah. if you get yourself in trouble, you have no one but yourself to rely on. So, um, there's been plenty, plenty of people that have died in the backcountry because they were solo and, you know, fell and hit their head and yeah. there's no one there to help them. Do you carry any sort of outreach device? Like an in-reacher? Uh, I do, actually. Um, so I actually carry two. Um, I, I carry a ACR is the brand. Uh, it's a personal locator beacon. So you can't text with it. It's literally just for an emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, and that signal goes directly to the SARSAT satellites. So they go directly to the search and rescue satellites um, with NOAA. So... It's extremely reliable, um, and it has virtually no holes of service around the entire globe. So I started carrying that um, because I you know, was spending so much time. I didn't have it back then because they didn't really exist, right. but now I do. Um, I also carry an in-reach now just because I can you know, text somebody or get in, re- get in touch with somebody if I want to or need to. But... Um, it's a great idea if you're going to, even if you're not going to be by yourself, you know, if you're, oh, yeah. if you're 15, 20 miles, two days in somewhere and you get hurt, you know, they're not gonna be able to carry you out that distance yeah, anyway. I think it's sometimes abused. Um, oh, I'm sure that there's people hitting, you know, oh, I'm tired. I, yeah. I need some help. It's like, no, it's, you know, unless it's life and death, you shouldn't be pushing that button. Right. I hope to never hit SOS for oh, any reason at all. Like I, I would, I would, <laughs> I would call, I would text a friend. Like I've got, we just got an inreach recently. Um, and I would text a friend to help me hobble out with a broken yeah. leg before I'd hit SOS. Right. Like, yeah. bring a crutch in, we'll right. we'll make it work. I mean, unless you are, you know, you've severed an artery and it's like, if someone doesn't get here right now, I'm going to die. Right. I think that's kind of what my mindset is. If, if I'm not going to die from my injury, right. then I'm going Find to call a friend. Find your way out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I like the inReach because there was a part of me that was like, I don't, I, I like getting out of cell phone service and not having that you know, like I could text somebody, I could call somebody, I could whatever. But I feel like the inReach is, it's hard enough to send a text that it yeah. deters me from sending any yeah. sort of casual text. Like I'm not texting anyone unless it's, hey, here's where I'm camped. Right. You know, I'll be here tomorrow at four, meet me there. Right. Um, I have absolutely no desire to text anybody for fun. Yeah. Um, so it, it still feels like you're at a cell phone service, but with just enough communication that you could right. um, relay a message to somebody if, if it would be beneficial to you. Right, right. Um, so I, I've enjoyed that. But yeah, yeah I, I feel like I went too long without one. I kind of feel like I was being a little bit irresponsible before because yeah. I was going out all the time without one. It's a one. good piece of equipment. I mean, that literally is the first thing that goes in my pack, whether I'm going out for a week or a day. It's, mm-hmm. it's just in my pack. Um, I carry that and I carry a 
first aid slash survival kit that's always in the bottom of my pack no matter where I go, no matter what I do. If I'm hunting, if I'm fly fishing for the day, backpacking, whatever, that thing is always in my pack. It's always with me. Yep. I've actually never really had to get in my uh, first aid kit, but I do carry a first aid kit and an emergency kit. So it sounds kind of like what you have combined, but yep. I have them separated. And the emergency kit's got like an extra compass, uh, a lighter with some duct tape around it, yep. et cetera, yep. you know, reflection mirror, things like that. Yep. Space blanket. Yep. You know, I could, if I had to, I could spend the night somewhere. It's probably not going to be very comfortable, but I even have some fishing line and a couple of flies that I threw in there in case I have to, you know, catch my dinner. Yep. I've done that as well. I'm like... One tiny indicator, yeah. a bunch of tippet, yeah. and a couple of flies, and yep. it's like I'll I'll get I'll I'll make something work out with a stick if I need to. <laughs> yeah, well, I actually practiced one time. We were uh, we went to um, uh, a creek um, west of the springs, and just were in there for the day. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to practice. Uh, so I cut a willow stick, and I took um, uh, I had some um, uh, dental floss, and I tied on some a little bit of fly line that I have in there and I put dental floss on the end of that. Oh, so you cut off like a, a short chunk of fly line. Yeah. To go, I just, oh, I just wrapped some short fly line to, you know, tie into the stick to give some, right, you know, that's something to, to be able to get some, you know, distance. And then I didn't, I didn't have any, uh, tippet. And so, but what I did have was, um, dental floss. And so I thought, no fish is going to grab a fly that's tied with on with dental floss. Oh, there's some stupid fish out there. Well, brook trout are probably the most stupid. <laughs> I was going to say brook trout yeah. come to mind. So, you know, I tie on a little, I don't even know what, it was probably a pheasant tail or something, and I just flip it into the hole where I could see there were brook trout. And sure enough, they came up and grabbed it. I probably caught eight or ten brook trout of this one hole with that, you know, willow stick and, and uh, some dental floss. <laughs> well, that's the benefit of, like, you're probably not going to need this kit unless you're way back there. And if you're way back there, the fish are probably not very... Right. 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 You know, if, if you're trying to survive on Cheeseman Canyon, you might not catch anything, <laughs> but like hopefully you're not needing your emergency kit sure. in Cheeseman Canyon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, that's, um, yeah, just to answer your question, I, I always carry something. And, you know, uh, there's, there could, there's a lot of debate of, um, you know, carrying a firearm, but I, I always say I, I travel, especially when I'm going solo with my two best friends, Smith and Wesson. <laughs> <laughs> so you never know what you're going to run into, whether it's human or non-human. Um, you know, you just, when you're there by yourself, you got to take, right. you know, you got to take care of yourself. I think uh, either a firearm or bear spray isn't yes. a bad idea to carry. Yeah. Like, like, again, both for human and non-human, bear spray, I'm sure would work great on a, on a perp Absolutely. outside your tent. Sure. Uh, so I think I think carrying one of those yeah. is not a terrible idea. If um, a bear is coming into your tent, uh, bear you know bear spray in your tent is probably not going to work very well. No, so, but I'd still use it over getting eaten by a bear sure. or attacked by a person. Yeah, <laughs> if the bear's dragging your dragging you out of your tent by your foot, you can always spray him in the face. Right. But so anyway, yeah, that's a key piece of equipment that I always carry. On your hip, or do you have like a chest mount or anything? Um, oftentimes I'll just put it in the pocket of my pack doesn't necessarily have to be you know super accessible i don't feel like um like things don't happen that fast at least in colorado in colorado i mean if i was yeah if i I mean when i've been in alaska um i've carried it you know on my chest right or attached to my hip um on my pack or what have you if i if i have to and bear spray on you know clipped on my on my pack belt as well so i've always been much more worried about human contact yeah but that's you know maybe as a somewhat small small stature woman yeah uh that's more on my mind than bears yeah uh 
and bears for me it's more like i get, i get my food up in a tree away from me yep. and i'm kind of uh, assuming that a bear we, we have had bears come and uh you know try to get into our bear vaults or whatever but um never had one try huh. to get to where i was because yeah. we just store our food away and right. it's never really much of a concern yeah just keep a keen clamp clean camp and bears typically will stay away from you right they're more of a problem in the campgrounds where all the people are right that's that's the thing in the that, backcountry that's that's kind of the um thought process we've taken like we don't we generally if we're in the middle of nowhere don't take our travel size toothpaste out of our like we'll just sleep with it yeah um assuming that the human scent within the tent is probably not or it's probably enough to deter a bear from coming for that right. one little thing right we'll put the food in the sack but if we're in an established campsite everything's going right in the in the trunk or yep. whatever yeah yeah, because I feel like that's where the problems actually are. Yeah. The, the bears that have never encountered people aren't yeah. really that much of a problem. But. And I don't think mountain lions would ever... I have never heard of an instance where a mountain lion has come into someone's tent. No, I haven't heard that either. So a mountain lion is more going to chase you, you know, if you're out running on the trail or walking on the trail or is going to amba- ambush like you. Looks prey yeah. escaping. Although I have... We were backpacking up on Pikes Peak. It's where I kind of cut my teeth backpacking when I was when I was very young, and uh, woke up the next morning and there were mountain lion tracks all the, literally all the way around our tent. That's unnerving. <laughs> I was like, oh, we had a we had a visitor last night. <laughs> uh, quick funny story about the flat tops. Before um, we went there, I had never been there before, and I was I was you know, just we were hiking in. Me and my friend Allie had this habit of hiking in at like 11 p.m. because mm. we get off work, you know, on yep. a Friday, and it's like, yep. okay, well, let's get in there that night. So we meet up at like 11, and we we just tend to hike in like after dark a yep. lot. Yep. And I was just psyching myself up about, you know, hiking after dark. And uh, I was like, well, the flat tops doesn't really look like mountain lion country to me compared to like a desert. You know, you think of like the desert rocks and stuff. And I was trying to calm my fears. So I typed in... Uh, flat tops wilderness mountain lion just hoping that it would be like there aren't a lot of mountain lions in the flat tops the very first link was fly fisherman attacked by mountain lion in the flat tops wilderness and i was just like why did, I, why did i do this why did i search this <laughs> specifically some uh, guy fishing was like attacked from behind yeah from a mountain lion oh, i was gosh. like why did you google this yeah like, this is not a good thing yeah when say. you're by yourself sometimes you know looking behind <laughs> you look, around, look over yeah. your shoulder is a good thing to do right yeah yeah Cool. Well, we've been we've been going for like an hour now. Um, do you have Do you have anywhere that like people could find you if they want to see you on social media? I don't know if I like um, follow you or anything. If if you have social I, media, I am on I am on Facebook. Um, I have an Instagram. Uh, my Instagram moniker is Trout Pro- Trout Prospector. Okay. Uh, find you. So yeah, if you want to, I don't use Instagram all that often. I actually kind of quit posting regularly on Facebook. Uh, it's just kind of a mess right now with everything yeah, going sure. on it's i tend to ignore all the noise and you know i post post pictures of trips that i've taken um i took a week or a month off from uh, work this summer and did a ton of backpacking and uh i posted that i think that was like my last post or one of my last posts so um, fair enough but anyways yeah you can find me on facebook um on instagram trout prospector and um yeah i i, I mean i i love spending time in the backcountry I uh, love backpacking, love fly fishing, so um, it's always great to, to meet like-minded people and that have the same interest and passion. Yeah, I agree. Well, so. thanks for coming over. This was a fun, fun chat. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget to head over to the website, fishuntamed.com, for all episodes and show notes. And also, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app, 
That'll get my episodes delivered straight to your phone. And also, if you have not yet, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. That's very helpful for me, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, Other than that, thank you guys again for listening, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody.